We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. So the bulk of this episode, we are going to be talking about abortion. So if this is a subject matter that is triggering for you or upsetting, as much as I would love you to listen to the episode, I would encourage you to perhaps listen to something else just because we want to make sure that you're okay. That's important. Healthy and happy. Yep, exactly. So today we'll be discussing Madame Ristel, and information was pulled from the following sources. A 2020 Mental Floss article by Simone Scully, a 2017 The Embryo Project Encyclopedia article by Rainey Horowitz, a 2016 Timeline article by Nina Renata Aron, 2012 New York Magazine article, 2012 Smithsonian Magazine article by Karen Abbott, the Feminists for Life of America article by Jen Hawkins, Notable American Women by Seymour J. Mandelbaum, and Origins Ohio State University article by Anna M. Peterson. So if you needed to terminate a pregnancy in the early 19th century in New York City, there was one woman you would visit. Madame Ristel. Born Anne Trow to impoverished parents in Painswick, England in May 1812, she had very little schooling and started working as a maid at the age of 15. The following year, she married a widowed tailor named Henry Summers, and they had a daughter named Caroline the year after that in 1830. The small family emigrated to New York City in 1831, settling in Lower Manhattan on William Street. Unfortunately, Henry passed away a few months later in August of 1831 from bilious fever, which is kind of similar to yellow fever. A lot of sources were went back and forth between the two, but bilious, they are different. Anne turned to working as a seamstress, doing piecework at home to provide for herself and to look after young Caroline. 1836, she met 27-year-old German-Russian immigrant Charles Lohman, who was a printer at the New York Herald. Charles was well-educated and frequented a bookstore on Chatham Street, where the radical philosophers and freethinkers of the time would gather to debate. It wasn't long before Charles, who was a bit of a quack physician, started publishing information about contraception and population control. At some point, the pair got married, she was only three years his junior, and Charles encouraged Anne to stop working as a seamstress and pursue a career in medicine. The pair worked together to concoct a story that she had traveled to Europe to train as a midwife with her grandmother, a famous French physician named Restel. Upon her return stateside, she assumed the moniker of Mrs. Restel before settling on Madame Restel. The prescriptions that supposedly inhibited conception and aborted unwanted fetuses were prepared by Anne's brother, Joseph F. Trow, who had immigrated to New York not long after his sister and secured a job in a pharmacy. 
It wasn't long before she started to advertise her services in newspapers, her first of which was published in the March 18th 1839 edition of the New York Sun and read in part as follows, quote, to married women, is it not but too well known that the families of the married often increase beyond what the happiness of those who give them birth would dictate? Is it moral for parents to increase their families, regardless of consequences to themselves or the well-being of their offspring, when a simple, easy, healthy, and certain remedy is within our control? The advertiser, feeling the importance of this subject and estimating the vast benefit resulting to thousands by the adoption of means prescribed by her, has opened an office where married females can obtain the desired information, end quote. Even though she had no formal medical training, she also offered, quote unquote, preventative powders, aka birth control, and performed surgical abortions as a last resort for women who took the pills with zero success. Surprisingly, abortion was actually legal, and ads similar to Restell's regularly ran in the penny press. Ads like this were the main way that women were able to learn about resources available to them so they could end unwanted pregnancies and prevent others. You may be thinking, how were they able to run without calling them out for what they actually were? See, they included euphemisms, such as the fact that they could regulate your menses, which at that time was what many thought abortions actually were. In Western history, before the four to five month mark, when a woman would experience quote unquote quickening or movement, pregnancy was often thought of in terms of a missing menstruation rather than that a fetus was in fact growing inside. By 1840, Anne's specialty became women's reproductive issues, and her pills were being sold in six outlets throughout New York, in addition to her booming mail order business. She also charged on a sliding scale at her clinic on Greenwich Street, where she performed surgical abortions, which were very rare, as well as consultations from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. If you were a poor woman, you would pay $20, or about $650 today. If you happen to be wealthy, $100, or $3,300 today. In the mid-1800s, a woman could be charged anywhere from five to 500 or 163 to $16,300 by professionals for a surgical abortion, but the majority of the women who paid were members of the middle and upper classes. Even though the practice was widespread, surgical abortions were extremely rare. The main method would be the use of herbs to induce and termination of pregnancy, such as pennyroyal, savin, tansy tea, black drought, blue coash, cedar oil, motherwort, ergo of rye, mallow, and more. These would be prescribed not only by midwives and homeopaths, but also by licensed physicians as well. Anne's mail order business included such products as preventative powder, which were sold for $5 a package or about $160 today, as well as female monthly pills for a dollar a piece or about $33 today. These pills were essentially just repurposed folk remedies that traditional healers had been using for years, which were effective sometimes, but not always. In an effort to prevent her clients from utilizing the services of a number of other male and female physicians that started to crop up, Anne didn't just sell herself as a physician. She also ran a boarding house for pregnant women who wanted to carry the babies to term away from prying eyes and judgmental family and friends. 
once the child was born, she'd help get the children adapted for a fee, obviously. It wasn't long before Anne became the city of New York's most celebrated abortionist, amassing a fortune to the tune of 1.5 million, or 50 million today. She was often seen wearing a collection of furs, expensive clothes and diamonds, as well as traveling about the city in an extravagant carriage with a coachman and four horses. I should note that the American Medical Association was not founded until 1847, and it wasn't until about 10 years after that when the AMA launched the Committee on Criminal Abortion. Their anti-abortion campaign in 1857 was just part of their efforts to restrict competition with homeopaths and midwives as they lobbied for the criminalization of abortion. The AMA sought to capitalize on the fears that not enough white, native-born women were having children. Anne's first major encounter with law enforcement took place in 1840. Maria Purdy, a 21-year-old woman who was suffering from tuberculosis, wanted to make a deathbed confession to her husband. The previous year, when she had been pregnant, she had decided she did not want to have the child as she was already raising their 10-month-old. After meeting with Madame Restel at her Greenwich clinic, she paid a dollar for a small vial of yellow medicine. She took one dose that night and two the following day before she stopped after she became concerned about what was in the vial. After a doctor examined the contents of the vial, which contained oil of tansy and spirit of turpentine, she went back to Ristel, who told her she could perform a surgical abortion for $20. When Maria was unable to pay, she instead offered a pawn ticket for a stack of rings and a gold watch, which Ristel accepted as payment. Following payment, Ristel took Maria behind a curtain where a man who was not Mr. Loman put his hands on her and stated that she was around three months along, after which she had the surgery. She was convinced that her bout of tuberculosis was a direct result of her having the procedure performed. Following her death, her husband went to the police, had Ristel arrested, and charged with administering to Purdy certain noxious medicine, procuring her a miscarriage by the use of instruments, the same not being necessary to preserve her life. So, as you guys mentioned, this deathbed confession happened in 1841. At the time that this all took place, her husband actually had the police magistrate and a judge come to their house. And so the judge spent about three hours with Anna Purdy and she went into the specifics that you guys outlined about, you know, she goes to see Madame Ristel. She pays a dollar for that yellow liquid. She takes some and then she stops and gets it kind of analyzed by a quote-unquote real doctor yep and then that doctor tells her hey this is poison you should stop taking this and she still like you had mentioned wasn't really sure that she wanted to have this child Mm -hmm. so she goes back to Ristel and that's when she decides to have this abortion but doesn't have the money to pay so she offers the pawn ticket which she accepts she then says she was taken into a dark room And she was told to lie down on the floor on top of a blanket, which already sounds sus to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Super gross. And you're already terrified too at that point. Right. And so then, like you you were mentioning, this man comes in that Mm -hmm. you don't know. Mm -hmm. Yep. Clearly not Ristel. Mm -hmm. Um, So he comes in and he puts some kind of instrument into her cervix. 
and she experiences a ton of pain, which I'm sure we can all imagine. He tells her afterwards that she would probably have some discomfort and she would probably get sick. It wasn't really described what kind of sick, but I imagine, you know, if she's having some kind of, she's aborting a fetus or she's having a miscarriage, there's probably a lot of, you know, things that are going on with her body that are going to cause her to be ill. Mm -hmm. Right. So she tells the judge that on her way home from the clinic, she was in severe pain and she almost fainted. So she eventually has the miscarriage and she claimed that she never recovered from it. And she developed tuberculosis as a result, at least in her mind, that's what she attributed it to. Mm -hmm. So the judge issues or has the police issue an arrest warrant for Madame Ristel after hearing all of this. And they sent police to Ristel's household to arrest her for involvement with an illegal abortion. Mm-hmm. She actually tried to tell police that she was Anne Lohman, who was an agent for Madame Ristel, not <laughs> Madame Ristel herself. Nice. And so she said, you know, I'm, I'm Ann Lohman and this is just a mistake mm-hmm. or a misunderstanding, but that doesn't work because Purdy is able to identify her as the woman that was in the clinic helping her and yep. who led her into the back room for the abortion. So her arrest and subsequent trial got a lot of media coverage. And as we kind of talked about, this is a period of time when it's becoming harder and harder for women to get abortions. Mm -hmm. It's very taboo in society, essentially. So some of the newspaper outlets at the time even went so far as to call Ristel out as a murderer. Mm -hmm. And she wanted her to close her clinics. She did try to clap back and she released a statement telling various media outlets that Purdy appeared to be in good enough health that she could attend late night parties and balls after her abortion and before she got sick with tuberculosis. I don't actually know if this was true, but this is what she's saying. Nice. So her bail was set at $5,000, which is over $161,000 today. Yep. Not the most outrageous bail amount we've seen, Mm -mm. for sure. But for the time, and based on the fact that the crime was only a misdemeanor, this was an incredibly high bail amount. Yeah. Yeah. They obviously did it because of who she was, not the crime. Absolutely, because the maximum at the time, based on the law, was $500. So this is literally 10 times higher than what the law Mm -hmm. was saying, you know. But the judge said he made the bail this way because her crime was severe and warranted such such a high amount of bail. Sure. It was later reduced to $2,000, but either she didn't have the money to pay it or she didn't want to spend the money to pay it because she stayed in jail until her next court date on July 14th of 1841. So by this time, Purdy had died from tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. So her husband basically stepped in on behalf of her estate. So Rastel was on trial for, quote, maliciously administering noxious medicines to Purdy to procure an abortion and causing an instrument to be used inside Purdy's body for the purpose of abortion, end quote. And this trial was definitely interesting and probably not something we'd see today. 
So first, Ristella's attorneys argued that Purdy's statement couldn't be entered into evidence. And the reason for that is that every person accused of a victim crime has the right to confront their accuser in the court of law. Mm -hmm. And that's a constitutional right that's granted to a defendant by the Sixth Amendment. Yep. Although I should note at this time, it's common law. You know, we haven't really fleshed out the Constitution and all of that at this time. Um, But it still is a thing at the time. So basically, her attorneys were saying this deathbed confession, even though it was made to a judge, Ristel wasn't present. And since Purdy had passed away, she can't testify in court. So basically, whatever she said to the judge at the time shouldn't be entered into evidence because it wouldn't be fair to Ristel. Sure. Which I think, you know, everybody can kind of understand that argument and why her attorneys would make that argument. Yep. And the judge ends up agreeing with her attorneys and ruled that Purdy's testimony was invalid. Now, without Purdy's statements, there's essentially no case against Ristel because there was no other evidence that prosecutors had to convict her. Mm-hmm. It was really just based on this testimony. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So what would be the likelihood or how often would they do kind of like an autopsy potentially to see if like the yellow substance was still in her body at her time of death? Or was this like way too far to even consider that at the time? Yeah, I don't actually know if that was like a routine thing that they did back yeah. at the time. I don't know when that was really, when that became a common practice to really look at the body and use I that think, as evidence. I think it was later. I could yeah. be wrong, but I feel like it was later. Okay. I can, I can look it up. <laughs> It'd yeah, be interesting I, to know, because if, if like that wasn't even something considered, then you'd be like, oh yeah, we don't have a case. Right. Versus like, oh, we can't do it because we don't have the money to pay for somebody to do an autopsy and then pay to be on the stand and talk about it. Oh, it did. It wasn't until the 1800s that the performance of autopsies became increasingly popular. Okay. Uh, So it might popular, but not common enough to be routine, like routine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. Good. Interesting factoid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no other evidence to convict her. But essentially, that's not quite the reason that she went free. Basically, she went without punishment because the proper procedures weren't followed in Purdy's case. So if the judge that took Purdy's statement had sworn her in before taking the statement, or he had included Purdy's answers to Ristel's questions that she had kind of given, then I think it would have been admitted. But he did neither of those things. So essentially, you still have the problem with the Sixth Amendment. She has no right to confront her accuser because you didn't allow her to be part of the deposition. You didn't even swear. It's more of like a statement at that point because Mm -hmm. you didn't swear her in to the point where it would be a deposition. And so it's not fair to kind of hold her to this what is essentially hearsay. Yeah. So the charges were eventually dropped and Ristel would be able to continue on performing abortions. Yep. Yeah. 
So following this brush with the law, she was like, well, I got away with it. So she opened up offices in Boston and Philadelphia as well. Why not? Why not? The New York state legislature passed a bill in 1845 that stipulated providing abortions on abortifacients at any stage of pregnancy was a misdemeanor that would be a mandatory year in prison. Additionally, women seeking abortions or attempting to self-abort could be subject to a $1,000 fine or about $37,000 today in a prison sentence of three to 12 months or even both. In February of 1846, Ristel was once again in court, this time for allegations made by a 17-year-old girl named Mary Applegate from Philadelphia, who had given birth at Ristel's Greenwich Clinic before the baby was given up for adoption. She stated that the adoption was conducted against her will and complained to the newly elected New York City Mayor, William F. Havemeyer. Ristel was acquitted after proving that it was Mary's lover who instructed her to go ahead with the adoption, which he did not tell Mary about because she was his mistress. Even though she once again was able to walk away, it wouldn't be long before she'd again find herself in court. Yes. So the lovely Miss Ristel would be arrested again in 1847. She performed an abortion on a young woman named Maria Bodine without anesthesia. So Bodine pressed charges against her, which she claimed was from pressure by police to do so. Wasn't her idea. Ristel originally told Bodine that she was too far along in her pregnancy to have an abortion, but Bodine's baby daddy mm-hmm. insisted that Bodine have the abortion, which Ristel eventually agreed to perform. So this guy's terrible. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think all involved are yes. pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. But he was, you know, her boss. Mm-hmm. Joseph Cook and yeah. she was an unmarried housemaid for him and just the the power dynamic is yeah. terrible. Yep. So Ristel did try to um kind of co- convince Bodine to stay in her boarding house and deliver the baby but you know Bodine is an unmarried housewife and she just didn't have the money to be able to afford that. Yeah. Plus her baby daddy is not going to let her keep the baby. Yep. He absolutely wants no evidence of this whatsoever. So that's why he again pushed for the abortion. But like we talked about before, this was post quickening. Mm-hmm. They referred to it back in the day. So by this definition, Rostel had performed an illegal abortion. Right. And according to articles that I read, the trial was a sensation. It was even bigger than Anna Purdy's trial. This is when she became known as the most evil woman in America. Mm -hmm. And one newspaper actually referred to her as a, quote, hag of misery, end quote. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Wow. Which, like, I never want to be referred to as a hag. That is just. No, (laughs) I would cry. Exactly. (laughs) The knife goes in at the word hag and it's dug in and twisted at misery. Yep. So unsurprisingly, everyone in the courtroom, except for Bodine and Ristel, were men. Of course. So much like today, men were making decisions they really had no right to be making about women's bodies. Mm -hmm. Just just want to put that out there. Yep. So Ristel's defense attorneys 
just absolutely tore Maria Bodine apart on the witness stand. You know, she was just 26 years old. She was of a lower socioeconomic class. And Ristel's attorneys basically just like painted her as this horribly loathsome woman who slept around and couldn't be trusted. Mind you, they weren't saying anything about Mr. Cook Mm -hmm. who knocked her up. But no, no. Men are infallible. It's fine. Oh my God. Well, he's a a business, high end businessman. So, yeah. He's terrible. So, she actually collapsed in the courtroom from all of the, you know, trauma of testifying and everything and just being berated on the stand. But this time, Ristel didn't get away from liability. She was convicted and she was sentenced to a year in jail on Blackwell's Island. And just as a side note, police did arrest Cook, but he claimed he didn't know Bodine, which I found hysterical because he, she literally worked for him. And then he also claimed that he was a victim of extortion. Of course. So he was never prosecuted. Of course not. You know, a male victim, we can't, we can't touch him. No. We must feel sorry for him. <laughs> no, not a pillar of the community. No, exactly. No. Mm-hmm. So Ristel wasn't going to let a silly little thing like jail bring her down. She used her money to buy a more cushy lifestyle while she was serving her time. She had a feather bed brought in. She dressed in fine silk instead of the regular prison uniform that everybody else wore. She even had catered meals brought in. Nice. <laughs> awesome. She was allowed to bring in carpeting for her prison cell or her prison suite, as she referred to it. (laughs) And her husband was allowed to visit her at will and stay for as long as he wanted. Sounds like a a great Airbnb experience. (laughs) Right. It just sounds like a a slightly more inconvenient bed and breakfast. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I do want to just throw it out there that Purdy and Bodine's trials were the only ones that Restell participated in, and she never actually confessed to any crimes. Yeah, no, she didn't. Restell served a year at the Blackwells Island Prison, which is now Roosevelt Island, after being found guilty of some lesser charges. Upon her release, the Lomans restarted their business on Chambers Street at a larger residence, but claimed she would no longer offer surgical abortions. Just pills, stays at the boarding house, and adoptions. She also applied for U.S. citizenship to improve her public image and was naturalized in 1854. As I've shared, Anne had become well acquainted with the police by 1854, working as an amateur obstetrician for 40 years. Not only was she regularly harassed and arrested by police, but she was also publicly derided in the press. In fact, Anne decided to defend herself, so she placed an ad in the New York Herald offering to pay $100 or $3,500 today to anyone who could prove that the medicine she prescribed was harmful. Quote, I cannot conceive how men who are husbands, brothers, or fathers can give utterance to an idea so intrinsically based and infamous that their wives, their sisters, or their daughters want but the opportunity and facility to be vicious. And if they are not so, it is not from an innate principle of virtue, but from fear. What is female virtue then? A mere thing of circumstance and occasion? End quote. 
Estelle was arrested again in 1855 on similar charges to what she'd faced during the trial in 1846, but the matter was settled out of court. In 1864, the Lomans moved into a four-story brownstone at 52nd Street and 5th Avenue and converted the Chambers Street building into the hospital and distribution center for their extensive mail-order business. Part of the reason the Lomans chose that location was to aggravate the first Roman Catholic Archbishop of New York who had purchased the block adjacent in order to build St. Patrick's Cathedral. It wasn't until 1867 that abortion before the four to five month mark became illegal in the United States. An abortion after that mark was considered second degree manslaughter and could result in a $100 fine or $2,000 today and a year in prison. Up until then, women, at least in America, were granted quite a lot of autonomy when it came to making choices regarding their own reproduction. But after the AMA was founded and medical professionals were trying to standardize their practices, part of this standardization was by undermining the knowledge not only of midwives and homeopaths, but of pregnant women themselves. Yeah. Quote unquote, regular doctors believed that methods to prevent and terminate pregnancies were a result of loose morals, which made it easier for those committing adultery to hide the fact and encourage sex work by eliminating the worry about the consequences. And in the words of Leslie Regan, history professor at the University of Illinois and author of When Abortion Was a Crime, quote, it was primarily married, middle-class, white, Protestant women who were failing to do their quote-unquote duty as women to their families and to the nation. If they refused to have children, other non-white and non-Protestant groups, namely Catholics, Black freed people, Chinese, and others, might gain power, end quote. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1869, New York made its biggest change to the abortion laws they had on the books. We kind of talked about this earlier. This is when you couldn't sell abortifacients. Abortifacients, yeah. Abortifacients, okay. And you couldn't perform abortions at any stage of pregnancy. So we kind of eliminate the quickening phase that we had been using before. None of it. So one of the other big changes that you had mentioned is not only were we punishing the doctors who performed abortions, we were also now punishing the women themselves that were getting abortions, Mm -hmm. which was a big change. So in 1872, the law became even more strict. Now it was a felony for a woman to attempt to have an abortion, whether or not the abortion was successful or seek out the services of an abortionist. Again, even if you don't have an abortion or you your abortion's not successful, just the act of you seeking out those services is now a punishable felony. Crazy. Nice. That'd be like you getting punished for a Google search nowadays. Yeah. Right? No kidding. Unfortunately for Anne, her rising success came at a time, as we just mentioned, when abortion was starting to get criminalized. During the later half of the 19th century, Victorian morals dictated that any frank discussions about sex were purely for those on the quote-unquote fringes of society. In fact, she was regularly called the wickedest woman in New York for performing the services she did. An anti-abortion advocate stated that she had committed, quote, one of the most hellish acts ever perpetrated in a Christian land, end quote. A fact. It wasn't long before the word restalism became synonymous with abortion. 
religious leaders started actively debating what defined fetal life, and it wasn't long before they joined forces with doctors to challenge women's experience of quote-unquote quickening to criminalize the practice of abortion entirely. AMA doctors discredited the very idea of quickening as unscientific and emotional. In 1869, Pope Pius IX declared that an embryo was a human being with a soul at conception. He also noted that abortions performed at any stage of pregnancy warranted excommunication from the church. By the time 1900 rolled around, abortion was redefined on a cultural and political scale as the taking of a human life, which in the eyes of the church was an immoral and illegal act. When her husband Charles passed away in 1876, Anne was ready to put an end to the business entirely. At this point, she was estranged from her brother and her daughter Caroline, but she doted on her grandchildren, Charles Robert and Caroline Summers Purdy, who both lived with her. Regardless of how many people she helped, Anne's career fell apart thanks to Anthony Comstock. Comstock was a representative of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, and author of the Anti-Obscenity Comstock Act, which I will let you now take over, Elise, with the Comstock <laughs> Act. Yeah, so the Comstock Act made it illegal to send, quote, obscene, lewd, immoral, or indecent publications through the mail. It was also a misdemeanor for someone to possess an obscene pamphlet or advertisement. So this would include any of Ristel's advertisements about abortion or what she has now shifted to contraception because abortion is illegal mm -hmm. at this time. Right. So the Comstock Act wasn't just limited to New York. This was a nationwide law. And like you had mentioned, Comstock was the head of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. So he had the ear of congressmen in the nation's capital in this role. So he was assigned as a special agent in the U.S. Post Office and was in charge of enforcing the Comstock Act. One of the areas that he vigorously defended was the rules about birth control in the Comstock Act. So he had numerous doctors arrested for supplying written materials explaining pregnancy and how to prevent it. Nice guy. Cool, bro. I just... Like, I would think that just explaining pregnancy is, it's educational. Like, why wouldn't yeah. you want to know, like, what happens during that process? Yeah. I think it's a lot safer to tell somebody what's about to happen versus somebody who's not understanding why they're getting Braxton Hicks or contractions or, you know, just right. to just like know what I your body is feeling. I'm vomiting every day and I don't know why. My breasts hurt and they're swelling and I don't understand why I'm gaining so much weight in just my stomach. So, right. Especially at a time where, you know, higher education, education in general is really just for men, mm -hmm. but men don't get pregnant. So, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> so obviously this is super alarming for people who are of lower socioeconomic status it's not that they don't want to have more kids. It's that they're literally in a class where they can't provide for kids if they're having more and more kids. And so they're yeah. trying to limit the number of kids for, you know, the best success that they can have as a family. Yep. And you're literally knocking out this choice for them. Yep. Bringing it back to Miss Ristel, Comstock sought her services in 1878 
under the guise of a husband who was seeking help for his wife. His poor wife, he was so worried about her. If she was going to have another child, he thought she was going to die. Very concerned. So after he meets with Ristel to kind of, basically he like met with her to see what her services are, what she charges, all of that. So he comes back a couple of days later with police and newspaper reporters and Ristel is arrested and charged with selling abortive and contraceptive devices. Anyone advocating for birth control could be prosecuted under this new Comstock law for sending information about these practices in the mail to the tune of six months to five years in prison and a fine up to $2,000 or $47,000 today. Before she could be brought to trial for another litany of criminal charges, and Ristel completed suicide by slitting her own throat from ear to ear with a carving knife. Her chambermaid found her nude, half-submerged body in the bath the morning of April 1st, 1878, the day she was set to appear in court. She was 66 at the time of her death. The April 3rd, 1878 edition of the Harrisburg Daily Independent published the following obituary. Quote, the funeral of Mrs. Ann Loman, better known as Madame Restell, took place this morning from her late residence, 52nd Street and 5th Avenue. There were no religious exercises at the house. The remains were enclosed in a costly casket and were removed to Terrytown for interment. Only her relatives, ex-judge Stewart, her counsel, and her servants attended the funeral, end quote. Anne Lohman was buried beside her husband in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Terrytown, New York. Her completed suicide was written off by Comstock as, quote, a bloody ending to a bloody life, end quote. Nice guy. Yeah, he seemed like super happy. I read in one article that he almost kind of took credit for her suicide because he had sure kind he of, did. yeah, he had like driven her to it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I read too, that when he heard that she had completed suicide, he thought it was a joke because it happened on April Fool's Day. That's when yep. she was supposed to go to trial. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until later where, when they were like, no, no, no. Yeah, she did. That he was just like super pissed off because he wasn't able to take her to court. Yeah. Then he would have been more in more famous. Yep. Yeah. That's the the sad story of Madame Ristel. But yeah. So I have a, a couple things. Sure. One, I did want to just briefly kind of touch on what happened to the Comstock Act, just because I think it was a bullshit law and I yeah. <laughs> want to talk about it. It was insane. But yeah. yeah. So they tried to repeal it in 1878, but that failed. Obviously, you know, Madame Ristel was still going to be prosecuted under that if she had Mm -hmm. gone to trial, but no real kind of change to the Comstock Act came until Margaret Sanger started the birth control movement in 1914. Wow. Yeah, she was like really focused on the birth control piece, but obviously like people are still looking at the Comstock Act as a whole Mm -hmm. between 1878 and 1914. Is a significant chunk of time that this Comstock Act was just in place and people were being prosecuted under it. Interestingly, the Comstock Act was still around until 1965 when the Supreme Court of the United States decided the landmark case of Griswold versus Connecticut. 
the court ruled it was unconstitutional for a state law to restrict access to birth control because that would interfere with a person's right to privacy. Griswold versus Connecticut basically tees up Roe versus Wade, which will come later. But again, Griswold versus Connecticut was focused on the birth control piece. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of why it tees up Roe versus Wade, because Roe versus Wade is more about the abortion piece. Mm -hmm. What's insanely crazy to me is that the remaining kind of key elements of the Comstock Act weren't repealed by Congress until 1971, almost 100 years after the law originally went into effect. That is, it's insane to me, but also at the same time, I'm not surprised if that makes sense. Like, that checks out. My other thoughts too are, I was super excited when I was just briefly starting my research after you guys picked this case. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, she's performing abortions for women in need. This Mm -hmm. lady's a badass. And then I was like, oh no, Lindsay and Maddie, they really duped me. They pulled (laughs) the wool over my eyes. I was just, I was so sad that like she could have been a really amazing champion, mm-hmm. but she was really just in it for the money. Yeah. And so that you just, started like, as a charlatan and finished as a charlatan. Yeah. yeah. And I just like, it bummed me out. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't realize that either until we started diving into it. And then I was like, oh yeah. yeah. But It does seem like when her husband passed away in 1876, like, because he was kind of the driving force behind all this. Like, he was the one that was like, you don't need to be a seamstress anymore. Let's go into medicine together. And you can be the face of contraception and abortions. Don't you want that? We'll set up this elaborate backstory for you and it'll be great. But it seems like once he passed away, she was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm sure, too, she I mean, she had millions of dollars like she didn't need to work anymore so I'm sure she at that point was probably like I'm just gonna retire I'm gonna hang out with my grandchildren who live with me and then he just have Comstock just happened to swoop in at just the right time before she had completely shuttered her doors well because we touched on a couple of times where she was considering it just stopping it all but at that point what she had remaining was a lesser evil you know like a place for women to have their entire pregnancy an adoption center you know that might not have been on the straight and narrow but was better than just like selling your baby off to somebody else or just uh, dumping your them own. off in front of the church or something yeah and, right so yeah. so i mean the the stuff she offered you know later in life were still very necessary things necessary services so I can see where even if she wanted to stop being the most wicked person in New York she couldn't because she had an obligation to keep yep because that essentially kept those women safe yeah right and a very dangerous situation I mean obviously you know like I know the American Medical Association hasn't been around forever and all this but Mm -hmm. going back to that time where, you know, she starts versus like where the American Medical Association comes in, just realizing that you could essentially just say anything you wanted about yourself. Mm -hmm. And there was like no repercussions. Like she could say that she was like a female physician. Yep. Yep. Even though she had no medical training, no medical license. She, she was a seamstress before. Yeah. Well, she could sew you up after. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't remember the exact year, but I feel like the American Medical Association didn't actually give you a doctor's like like didn't require a license until like after the 19 after 1900. Yeah, like so it, I think I had it in my notes. I think it was like 1912 or 1915 that they actually started requiring medical training of mm-hmm. doctors. Yeah, because like up until that point, you could just apprentice with somebody. You didn't yeah. even have to go through any formal education or anything. No anatomy, you know how biology worked. Like you could just watch some guy do amputations and sew people up. And it's like, no, you're a doctor. Gold star. Hit out there, kid. Start yeah. treating patients. You know, like that's scary, terrifying. It is. But if you think about it, at that point, we're still a super new country where the states versus federal regulation was super intense. Mm -hmm. And so you had all of these like midwives and homeopaths that were the only doctors available in Mm -hmm. an entire town in a rural area. And Mm -hmm. now suddenly this one organization is coming in being like, nope, can't be a doctor. Guess you guys don't have a doctor now. That would that would be ridiculous. And so I can see where why it took so long to regulate because there was still just <laughs> too much ruralness in yeah. a lot of the country to be able to have a standard practice. Yeah. 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 And I think too, like part of it is still kind of what we see today, even mm-hmm. in the state versus federal, in terms of maybe not necessarily recognizing that this is something we should be doing at a national level, kind of, you know, regulating doctors, lawyers, like that kind of thing. And I think, you know, that was a very big state autonomy time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like doctors are something that we kind of need to have a a more standard kind of thing. Yep. You know, it's, you don't want doctors from a certain state to have, you know, lesser, requirements or whatever, you know, it should be the same across the board. So I think there just wasn't that recognition at the time until later on that, oh no, this is like something we need to address from the the top down. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Agree. But I thought this was an interesting case and your deep dives into like the legal aspects of it were really, were really fascinating too. Yeah. Like just hearing more from the trial perspective on kind of how that stuff worked. So, yeah, well, and it was definitely like interesting because it's something we don't, I think, see a lot of today. I mean, there's definitely cases where people try to prosecute for these kinds of things, but we have so much. Well, we don't have so much, but we have some autonomy over our bodies and the choices Mm -hmm. we get to make. And so it varies state by state. Yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's it's interesting to see kind of how prevalent this was back in the day. And maybe provide a cautionary tale to people yeah, about what we yeah. could see in the future. Well, and it, it was so swift. It took less than her entire lifetime of 66 some years. It was probably like less than 30, actually, if you think about it, of it going between like, oh, here's this wonderful solution to this problem that these people have where there is no contraception and they are having too many children and it's too much of a health risk or they can't feed these children that they're going to be having. Like Mm -hmm. there's, there's that kind of disparity versus if you even think about reading something about pregnancy 
you could get arrested, <laughs> you know, like yeah. if you even like try to wonder what it, what's happening. So I think the fact that it was so swift and yeah. aggressive and that politics and religion took part in it so, so soon and so aggressively and so like loudly and all of it too made it so that it essentially turned into like the Maury show. Of- yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention, I think, like you were saying, we were still such a a baby country and compared to a lot of other countries, we still are a baby country. Mm -hmm. But at the time, we were still figuring out that separation between church and state thing. And so I think there was too much allowance for religion to influence politics. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we see that with like the Catholic church coming out and saying like, they've decided when life begins and all of that hope the pope decided when and then the law followed suit right and that's absolutely not how it should be if we're actually living in a country that's got this separation between church and state yep yep well and, and it became a religious war too of them just assuming that all of the women seeking abortions were you know crazy protestants or they just had loose morals. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're people just... who, who had no religion or Protestants and they needed to be more Catholic. Otherwise we might have mixed race babies. Oh, God forbid. forbid. <laughs> and like mixed race babies are like the healthiest, greatest, like genetically sound children available. But sure, sure. No, no, no. Don't do that. No, that's fine. <laughs> no, terrible. Yeah, yeah. I love how they called out like freed black people and the Chinese as like, Right. They're going to move in on our turf. Watch yeah. out. Like yeah, because what? we didn't already move in on somebody else's turf. Yeah. Right. Funny, <laughs> funny how that wasn't mentioned. But uh yeah. for force moves of yeah. large classes, large groups of people into an alien country. Yeah. So, yeah. Hi everyone. It's Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. That's right. I've combined my three favorite things into a podcast. Cats, true crime, and lawyering. Every other Thursday, my co-host Winston and I bring you a new case from the Pacific Northwest. Winston is my sassy sidekick with a mustache who can often be found donning a bow tie. In other words, she's my cat. Winston and I are passionate about true crime and we love doing this podcast. As of this recording, we've released over 30 regular episodes and a few bonus episodes. Our episodes are focused on the victims and sharing their stories, something we take a lot of pride in. We're working hard to produce true crime content in an ethical way. Plus, every quarter, Winston and I donate our ad proceeds and Patreon proceeds to a true crime or animal-related nonprofit organization. If you're from the Pacific Northwest or you just enjoyed true crime, Winston and I would love for you to check out our show. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Good Pods. We hope you'll join us for some true crime in the Pacific Northwest. That's fun. Should we do our fun thing for this episode or should we record it later? I feel like we need I, to end on know. a good note. Yeah, I don't know. Do you want to participate Yeah, in our something good thing, Elise? So yes, I would love that. For our podcast, generally, when we have something super sad like this, <laughs> we end our segment with what's something good this week that's happened that's made you happy. I can go first. 
Uh, last weekend, my partner and I had his daughter over and we had recently gotten these like really well-made cardboard boxes, like huge cardboard boxes. So I got to watch her and and like help make this crazy house that she made. And she made like an outhouse too. <laughs> and like, it was just so cool. And I make these. So I was sick a couple of weeks ago. And I started making these like slushies of just like water and like a hydro water. It's it's like a Gatorade monster's version of a Gatorade. So I mix it so I can have like electrolytes and B vitamins constantly during allergy season. And she was like, can I have one too? It's like, <laughs> it's just water, but like, sure. <laughs> so I, I made her one and it was really cute because I don't think she realized that it was wa- mostly water because then she like kept going to the bathroom constantly. <laughs> and then she was like, I don't know what's going on. I might be sick. And I was like, no, I think you're just like hydrated for one of the first times <laughs> in a long time. Cause she's a kid. So like, yeah, you're just constantly running around and like, don't even think of liquids until, you know, you're dying. So <laughs> I think she was just well hydrated for the first time and like yeah. a little bit. So it was really funny, but it was just really nice to have her. It was a good, good weekend. Thanks. All right. How about you? If you have something, you can go first, at least. Well, I think. So mine is definitely going to be just all the wonderful individuals I've been podcasting with lately. I've had a couple um, in the last week or so uh, with Jules from the Riddle Me That podcast. I just recorded with Alex from Weird Distractions. I recorded with Lindsay, Emily, and Ashley yesterday for Pineapple Mm -hmm. Pizza. And just being able to kind of be in the indie podcast community and have it be so welcoming and supportive. I know we kind of talked about it yesterday, Mm -hmm. just how different the spaces compared to like the big true crime podcasts yeah I've never felt like competitive like obviously we all want our shows to be like successful and everything yep. but not to the detriment of somebody else's show right yep. you know which I absolutely love I mean everybody has such a unique take on their shows and like your guys's is super unique I don't see a lot Thanks. of like <laughs> historical true crime yeah and yeah. so it's like such an amazing niche to be a part of that I think you know at least for me I don't even realize like how many historical crimes like I could cover mm-hmm. so many because it's just not something that I was like really exposed to Mm-hmm. But kind of after like hearing your guys' podcasts, I'm just like, oh my gosh, these things are so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And just to see how far we've come or how far we mm-hmm. haven't come mm-hmm. from certain things is yeah. just, I wish that more people did this because it's, I think it's so important to hear about history and how we can like learn from that and go forward. Yep. And not just continually repeat. Exactly. Yep. So yep. I love collaborating with all of my little indie podcast friends. It's yeah. Even though we talk talk about dark stuff, it's so much fun to like not always talk to myself. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my something is gonna be really nerdy. I can't remember when it came out, but it recently came out that they found the ship Endeavor in the Arctic, which was part of 
the Shacklebolt expedition where they were trying to find the Arctic Circle or like get as close to the Arctic Circle as they possibly could. And this ship wrecked and it sank in the Arctic Ocean. And, you know, it's a, it's a big wooden ship. So they like they had never yeah. found it. And it's one of the few cases where people, you know, went to try to explore the Arctic where the whole crew survived. A lot of those cases that was not the case and a lot of people died or were cannibalized mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's one of the few ones where they actually the whole crew survived and when they found the wreckage it's pretty much completely intact because the water's so cold and so it's been a really fascinating thing to see like the pictures that have come out about like what the ship looked like and you know the types of things that are still on the ship so it's like a fascinating piece of history that's been discovered again that because you know it was just lost like no one knew exactly where it sank they had a general idea of where it sank but the fact that they've found it after over 100 years is really cool so (laughs) can we do a a story on it later i think it's past the 1900s because i feel like the expedition i feel like the expedition was later let me double check when the shackle bolt because i looked into it i was like oh we should cover this but other indie podcasts about ships reach (laughs) out to us and we'll do this podcast episode with you (laughs) attention all boat podcasts (laughs) yeah all 27 men under it was shackleton sorry not shackle bolt shackleton's command shackle bolts from harry potter Yeah, Vatica Devred. Let's see. Yeah, it was in 1915 when the expedition. But yeah, they discovered the the wreckage on March 9th of this this year. Crazy. It was nearly it was nearly 10,000 feet below in the water. So that's just it's really cool. And that's with global warming. Who knows how deep it was before? Yeah. So. If you have a chance to look at, at pictures of the endurance shipwreck, I highly recommend you do because it's I'm totally it's, do that. it's fascinating. So that's my something good, my nerdy something good. <laughs> I totally thought your something good was going to be the image that I left you with yesterday. <laughs> yeah, of the that was also a treat. <laughs> yeah, what was the monster called again? The, the Bear Lake monster. The Bear Isabella. Lake monster. Isabella the Bear Lake monster. <laughs> yeah. People need to Google that as well. It'll be featured on an episode of Pineapple Pizza, but yeah, it that was a treat. <laughs> it is a cryptid like no other you've ever seen before. <laughs> and probably will never see again. Yeah, this is true. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this episode with me. Yeah. yeah. Thank was, you for having us. Like I said, my first historical crime episode, and I think it was a really good one. Yeah. yeah. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.